Well, we've been working through over these past um, weeks the story of Samson, and we've got a few weeks before we hit our build-up to Christmas, and we're going to consider just a short uh, series which we've entitled uh, God Rocks, and that might sound a bit strange, but as we work through it, hopefully we'll, we'll begin to see what we actually mean by that. And we're going to be considering this afternoon this little section uh, in the book of Luke, I guess for all of us. Uh, life's uh, events uh, and the course of life and what happens in our lives, it's a combination really, isn't it? It's a combination of the, somebody said, we are the decisions that we make or the choices that we make. It's been stated in two ways. We are the decisions that we make or we are the choices that we make. And I guess that all of us would say to some extent we can see how that, that's true, isn't it? That we are the decisions that we made. You know, 16, coming up to 17 years ago, uh, we moved from Liverpool uh, to Yorkshire. It was a big decision at the time. It was a huge decision. And uh, we moved over here and it would never have in a moment uh, of our thinking would we have considered that we, I might end up in, in this kind of responsibility and calling uh, it was never on our minds, but, but that decision uh, in the way that God has opened uh, our lives and, and the pathway that he has taken us has resulted in us being here. Uh, and you are here because of a whole series of choices that you have made. But at the same time, it's not just the choices that we have made, is it? Uh, there's something else going on. We are impacted by events in life. Things happen in our lives. Things uh, come into our pathway. Things change. In fact, we can enter into certain choices with certain expectations, with certain uh, objectives, and then we find ourselves uh, unable to fulfill that which we chose. We realize that events have overtaken us in some way. Life's events have grabbed us and we are not where we thought we would be. And maybe you're in that situation this afternoon. Maybe you're uh, on, on one of those uh, surprising moments in your life where you find that you are not where you expected to be. You are in a different place. Maybe, maybe the place that you find yourself this afternoon is the fact that you're in a church, a church in a surprising place. You might be thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Well, to some extent, that combination of the choices that we make and the things that happen to us uh, and the events that overtake in our lives are the pathway which for many, in fact, I would suggest for all of us, in fact, for every human being at some point in life, to a greater or lesser extent, cause us to think and cause us to be confronted with the issues of heaven and earth, uh, of life, of God, of human existence, all of those big questions. I would say that many of us as well have also reached the point where we realize that the things that we had hoped for, in fact the things that we actually have achieved, are not what, they thought, not what we thought they would be. They don't turn out to be quite 
as exciting, quite as filled with hope. Uh, I was watching, some of you might have seen it, it was quite moving actually, watching um, James Corden last night being interviewed by Piers Morgan. That guy was really at the very pinnacle of, of um, celebrity success, really at the top, uh, and he lost it. He just went off, off the rails in a big way. And he said this, and I actually, yeah, it's great, isn't it, when you can pause your TV and actually, right, I'm going to make a note word for word of just what he says. He said this, what happens to a dream when it becomes a reality? It's a great question, isn't it? What happens to a dream when it becomes a reality? Here's his answer. He says this. It just sort of vanishes within you when you get hold of it. Isn't that incredible? He reaches the very pinnacle of success. He's, He's hit the dream. He's achieved it. And he says it just sort of vanishes within you. I thought that was so poignant and is actually the reflection of so many people. And can I say to you, you, you younger guys who are perhaps still thinking that dreams are going to be the fulfillment, can I just warn you <laughs> that the dreams that you think that you are holding on to with absolute hope, when you get there, they will not deliver in the way that you expect them to. I am not saying in that do not pursue ambitions and goals and directions and focus. I am not saying just live a kind of listless, drifting life. That is equally destructive. It's equally destructive to kind of live a life with no focus and no uh, direction. But do not instill all of your hopes into those dreams because when you get there, you will find, as James Corden found out, that they vanish within you. I thought the fact that he said the dream vanishes within is so powerful. It wasn't like the dream was outside, although it was made up of things outside. It was inside that it all fell apart. He said this, what happens when you've kicked and scored? And then I went to pick the ball out of the goal and you just don't know where you are. He had lost who he was. Now, the great thing is, in human terms, it seems as though he's dealt with those issues and he's kind of moving on. But to what end and and where? That's a really important question. But, But that little incident was really quite focusing as I was preparing for uh, this afternoon because it, it reflects so many of the, um, those moments of crisis in our lives where we begin to ask big questions. What do we do with those moments? Because we have that point in time, that moment if you like, that crisis in life And crisis doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing when I use the word. Probably I'm using it incorrectly. But I'm looking at those key moments, those turning points in life. What do we do with them? Are we going to use them in a way which reflects and questions those big issues of life? Or are we going to use them just as another little stepping stone to the next temporary little goal. The question that I'm asking is, are we going to see the moments in our life when God 
rocks our lives. Because he does. And he will. And he must. God rocks our lives. We're going to look at uh, this little section. It's only a few verses. Uh, and it's an account of a group of men uh, who meet with Jesus. The series, what I'm looking to do over these next few weeks is to, through little incidents in the Bible like this, is to realize a few things. To realize contrary to the, the, kind, of, um, the kind of view of religion. Religion is not just something, or the, the Christian faith is not just something uh, which is a nice thing to do. True faith in God must result in our world being rocked in some way. Not by us, but by him. It must result in that. And no matter who we are, no matter what our backgrounds, no matter what our age, no matter what our social status, no matter what our moral perspectives, God must rock our worlds. That means... That those of us who are, if you like, libertines, those of us who are living completely free lives, God must rock our world. God must shake us up if it's a true encounter with the God of the Bible. But equally, God must rock our world if we are, uh, if you like, the, the moral stoics where we find our identity in being upright and in being good, no matter which end of the spectrum we are, God must reshape us. That means that God, in his separateness from us, the Bible uses the word holiness, he will confront us, no matter where we come to him, on a very, very wide spectrum. And I would say that the secret to progressive, developing Christian faith, those of us who are believers, is to stop resisting that reshaping and to begin embracing that reshaping. Maybe you're, maybe you're fighting that. Maybe you're going through life still fighting that reshaping. The Christian life and the positive growth in our Christian faith is reaching the point where we begin to embrace the reshaping of God in our lives. Let's have a look at what happens in this little occasion. Jesus is now, it says, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the gospel accounts give us little indications. That, that's very important what it says there. Uh, one of the things that we see in the, in the account of Jesus is that he is very deliberate in what he does. Uh, what happens in his life is not, if you like, a series of accidental events. He is on a mission. And the mission for Jesus is finally to take him to Jerusalem. And it says in that opening verse, it says, he is now on his way to Jerusalem. Those of us who, as we are now, 2,000 years after uh, Jesus Christ walked this earth, we are able to look back and say, that journey to Jerusalem took him to the cross. If we'd have been there walking with him, we wouldn't have realized that. We can see it. He knew it. He was on his way to Jerusalem with a purpose because the cross was where he was headed. 
And we see that he's now on his way to Jerusalem and he's traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Two different groups of people. Those who are, if you like, the covenant community of Israel, God's people, and those who were not. He's right on the borderline. He's traveling back. Uh, He's traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And, And he is approached from a distance by a group of men. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. It's really important. These, these men, ten men, who approach Jesus, and yet they stand away, they separate themselves, they keep their distance from him. They would have kept their distance from everybody. Because leprosy in those days, and just to maybe clarify, uh, leprosy in those days is perhaps not what we think about. It almost certainly is not the leprosy which is now considered today. One of the translations that's used particularly in the the Old Testament, uh, in, in translations today, for the word leprosy is terrible skin disease. Uh, A terrible skin disease. And if we go into the Old Testament, for example, we read the account of a man called Naaman and his his skin has gone white. (laughs) Uh, And there is another known disease today, which is a terrible skin disease. uh, And leprosy today does not do that, the leprosy that we know of. Rather, the idea of leprosy in the Old Testament uh, book of Leviticus is, is a terrible series, a whole range of terrible skin diseases which were identifiable, which you could see that you were afflicted with, and they would do a number of things. They would separate you. Firstly, they would separate you religiously. We read in Leviticus chapter 13 that those who were afflicted with leprosy were separated out. They were not allowed to attend the, the temple. They were not allowed to come to, if you like, religious ceremonies. They were not allowed to be part of the community of God's people if they had a skin disease. We're going to see why in a minute. But secondly, they would be separated socially. Generally speaking, they were incredibly infectious diseases. So we have this group of men who are separated from Jesus. Uh, And so they are very used to the idea of standing away from people. And and they stand away from Jesus, but they don't just observe. What we see is that they call out with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's important that. Gives us a little window, if you like into what was going on at that particular time in the life of Jesus. He's traveling around, and uh, for three years he is ministering uh, in the area, around the area, and he is engaging with people, they are meeting with him, he is healing people, he is uh, healing the sick, he is uh, making the blind see, he is making the dumb speak, he is raising people from the dead, and uh, his reputation, if you like, is going before him. There are great crowds who are following Jesus on pretty much most occasions. We read occasions where Jesus finds it difficult to get from one place to another because of the sheer crowd. There are so many people who are following him because of his reputation. He is having a profound impact in the area. So much so that the historians 
the secular historians, if you like, the people outside of those who wrote the historical accounts of the Bible, also speak of Jesus and the impact that he had on society. And we see that Jesus is at this point uh, there, and he is speaking and healing people. And so these men know his reputation, and they shout, Jesus, Master. We see this picture of separation, calling out, please help us. Jesus, Master. Master's incredibly important, isn't it? They could have just shouted, Jesus, help us. But they don't. They say, Jesus, master, help us. We see something in you, they are basically saying, that has authority. We can see something in you that we believe has a power to deal with the issue that we have. Even though we are separated. At the top of uh, the hill on the, the, the uh, trip from Pontefract into Aquith, there's a, there's a plague stone. It's a round stone with a, uh, a dish just in the, in, dished out in the middle uh, where vinegar would be placed into the, into the top of the stone and those who were suffering from the plague uh, would have brought their money, dropped the money into the, into the vinegar uh, and people outside of the village would have brought provisions, left it on the stone and they would have paid for it cleaning the, the coins in the vinegar separation, social separation, helplessness, hopelessness. That's where these men are. And they cry out to Jesus. Almost as though they are, they are calling out over the plague stone, saying, we from this side need help. And the only help is from outside of us. It's from over there somewhere and we, we know that it's no good calling to anybody else because they can't help us but we see some hope in you. So they call out to Jesus. I think that is very uh, powerful actually. It's an indication of the human heart. It's an indication of the experiences that many people have at those real deep crises in life. They have reached the end. If you like, they are pretty much dead men walking. They have no hope. They are separated in every conceivable way and they are without hope. At that point, it is reflected again and again that at that point, people call out outside of this world to God. They might not have been able to put together in their minds, in their thinking, exactly what that might mean. But there is a point in life where many people find themselves, this world is not satisfying, this world does not offer any hope, I need something from outside of this world, in a sense... That's what these men are saying. They are saying, in a sense, we believe Jesus. You are in some way more powerful than the simple powers of this world. The simple skills uh, or authorities of this world. Master, help us. They cry out. I was reading uh, a little, just a little book uh, earlier part of this week and... Um, that was reflected in something that was said. 
Richard Dawkins, who is intellectually staggering. You know, he, he is, I, wouldn't, I would never want to stand here and, if you like, knock somebody of the mental uh, and intellectual capabilities of Richard Dawkins. He is streets ahead of me in so many ways. He, he is an intellectual genius in many ways. He takes a group of um, older teenage school children to uh, a place where there are fossils. And uh, in showing them, if you like, what he declares as the fossil record, he turns with great triumph uh, and great, great confidence and he says, there, look at that. Doesn't that discredit any of your religions? Doesn't it mean that we can just turn our back on religion? What was interesting is in discussions with those teenagers, some of them said this, well, it still won't stop us from praying. Wow. I find that fascinating, don't you? You see, the fossil record uh, and the intellectual ideas and all of those thoughts, they are not big enough. They are not powerful enough to wipe away what is inside of us. They can't overturn what we know deep inside. There is something in us that says, present me with all the fossil records that you possibly can, but there has still got to be more. It doesn't convince me. And in that little window of conversation, it seemed to me, who is, the, who is the most rounded? Who has got the bigger vision? I would suggest in that moment in time, for all of his intellectual capabilities, actually a group of teenage school children have got a wider vision. They are reflecting what we know inside. What we say, there is more. There has got to be more. There is more than just this. And these men, at the very last moment, in their final kind of cries, they call out and say, Jesus, we believe that it is possible that you are the connector. You are the master. You are the hope, it would seem, in their cries. And so, Jesus responds. He says to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. That's a bit of a reflection back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. That for those with these terrible skin diseases, they were religiously separated. And because they were religiously separated, they were also then socially separated. And in if you want to read in your Bibles later on this evening, if you go to Leviticus chapter 13, you will see the, uh, the pattern for how individuals should respond. They should take these uh, skin conditions to the priest and the priest would make an assessment of whether it was a skin condition that would separate them or not. They go to the priests and as they go, what is obviously a condition which would separate them disappears. In other words, Jesus, in a few words of instruction, 
tells them to go and heals them at the same time. What they thought they were crying out for has proved to be true. Jesus is powerful over the the events of this world. Jesus has an authority. Jesus has a a power and um, a supremacy over those aspects of our lives. Life and death, sickness, health, mental strength, mental frailty. That's what we see here. We see that in this incident, by Jesus saying, go and show yourselves to the priests, he shows, I have that authority. He is unique. That is why the story of Jesus remains one which is proclaimed even today. Because of the uniqueness in its day, which was captured, which was tested, and which continues to be declared today. He's the one man in all of history who could say to a group of men who were clearly sick, go and show yourselves to the priests, and in those words they find themselves healed. Now look at what happens as a result of that. Because this is where it gets personal. Ten of them go. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. One of them comes back to Jesus. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. That's amazing. It's amazing on lots of levels. And I would say it's actually quite powerful for every one of us today. What is actually happening here? All ten of them have confronted God. Or rather, God has confronted them. God has changed their lives. Every one of them. All ten of them start a journey, it would seem to me. What what would have separated them in their sickness would have been their religious identity. Nine of them were Jews. One of them was a Samaritan. But in their sickness, they're all in it together. They're they're just all there. They don't recognize the difference when they're sick. But as soon as they're healed, nine of them go to the priests and find themselves socially reunited and religiously reunited. But only one of them comes back And finds themselves spiritually reunited. Only one of them. Because only one of them comes back to Jesus. Only one of them is changed in such a way. That he does something which is utterly remarkable. He comes back. And can you imagine the scene? Jesus has called across. And said to them in probably as loud a voice as they used to him. You go to the priests. He's kind of yelled it out to them. Go to the priests and, uh, and show yourselves to them. Everybody would have heard it. They go off. Ten of them disappear. One comes back. And as he walks back, he finds himself on his face before Jesus. I don't know about you. But there is not one other person 
in this world that I would find myself falling on my face in worship to? Would you? I would suggest to you, if there is somebody, you've got your priorities twisted. There is nobody, there is nobody in this world who justifies us walking in front of a crowd of people. That's what would have happened. There were people all around, they'd have heard the conversation, and this man walks to the front of everybody and just falls at the face of Jesus and worships him. Worships him. Look at the words that Jesus says to him. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? What is Jesus saying? Just think about it. Has nobody else come to praise God? What's the man doing? He's on his face in front of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hasn't anybody come back to praise God except this foreigner? We can never say that Jesus never claimed to be God. If we look at what is being said there, he's saying, there's only one person come back to praise God. And the person who happens to be praising God is at this point in time on his face before me. In other words, he is saying quite simply, he's praising God. As he's down on his knees, he is praising God. Now that, in that moment, at that very point, we see the the foundation for our next few weeks. We really do. If we really truly come to terms with the God who has made us, it will result in us on our face before God. Now, we do not have Jesus present with us to physically fall in front of. We do not see symbols and statues and icons as an acceptable, sufficient representation of Jesus to fall down in front of. They are not good enough. But we still fall down in worship before Jesus. We still do. Because what we realise is this. That when we truly, completely come to terms with Jesus, the whole of our lives are changed. Our priorities are altered. Our focus is is completely redirected. What we once held as priority is shifted. We cannot truly come face to face with Jesus. We cannot have God rocking our world without reaching the point of emptiness before him. And that is the foundation that we find ourselves in. He becomes this man who was once separated from God, becomes a worshipper of God. He becomes a worshipper. And a worshipper is the very foundation of what it means to be changed. Because once he he had himself as the very focus of life, 
And now he finds that this man who has healed him has become the very focus of his life. Everything is now reorientated by Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This one man has changed my life. I find myself with no option but to place myself at his feet. Now here's the thing. Over these next few weeks, we need to work out what does it mean for us to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus? To find ourselves prostrate. To find ourselves bringing nothing. To find ourselves, if you like, emotionally, psychologically, practically, spiritually, on our face before him. And just so we don't think that Jesus leaves us there, look at what he says to the man. Look at what he says to him. As he sees this man, on his face he says this, rise, rise. You see, when you worship me, it doesn't push you down and down and down and down. When you worship me, it lifts you up. I lift you up. Every other God, every other thing that we strive for, what James Corden said, his, his God was success. And what he found is when he got there, it didn't deliver. In fact, it crushed him. It left him empty. It didn't lift him up. It didn't exalt him. It didn't say rise and continue going. It left him down on the ground. It said stay there. In fact, go a little bit lower. But Jesus always says, when we come to terms with the fact that we become worshippers of him, he always says, now rise. Now rise and go. What is the difference? He says it. Faith. He says, your faith has made you whole. He didn't say that to the other nine guys. The other nine guys, it would seem to me, were physically healed. They were made better. And one man was made whole. By faith. We just sung it. What a great new song we just sung. By faith. One is made whole. He is made whole because he is now connected. He is now in relationship. He is now at one with the God who made him. God has rocked his world.